You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. This podcast is designed for authorised financial advisors. If you are not an authorised financial advisor, it's important you understand the content of this podcast may be difficult to follow as it assumes you have the necessary training and qualifications to understand the concepts discussed. The information contained in this podcast is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Hello and welcome to the first of our what will be regular First Tech Update podcast, which are designed to keep you abreast of the latest technical and regulatory developments which may impact your clients and the the advice you provide. I'm Craig Day, head of the First Tech team, and joining me today to discuss our latest technical issues is Julie Fox, Kim Guest, and Tim Sanderson. G'day, guys. Hey, Craig. Craig. Hello. How are we all? Good. All right. Yep. Yeah, good. All right. <laughs> Getting back into the swing of things. Are we all excited about this new first tech podcast on on tech update? Woohoo! Rare, rare Woo-hoo. Yeah. Okay. Terrific. All right. So for everyone else out there, what we're going to be discussing today is some recent announcements. So that could be legislative. It could also be regulatory or anything you kind of need to know about. We're also going to have a look at a recent bill that has passed both houses that includes some of the really important superannuation announcements that were included in last year's federal budget. So really important there to discuss what's happened um, because some of the changes have got through, but not all of them. And also the way they've done it is really important to understand. So we'll spend a bit of time talking about that and then we'll finish off with some recent SMSF issues to be aware of. So, all right, let's jump into recent development. So, Julie, um, we've got changes or movement in the station in relation to the federal budget and also the federal election. Do you want to run through that? Sure, Craig, thanks. Um, If you haven't heard, the federal budget has been moved up to the 29th of March this year rather than in May when we usually have it. Uh, It will be a pre-election budget, of course. It's an election year, so um, probably a lot of tax concessions and and so forth and lots of promises being a pre-election budget. Um, And the federal election, uh, the timing of that is to be held no later than the 21st of May. Um, Now, what happens uh, when they call the election, they actually have to dissolve parliament. And when they dissolve parliament, any bills that are still in the House or in the Senate lapse, uh, they don't become law. And um, that means that Anything that hasn't been made law prior to the election being held has to be reintroduced um, into Parliament in the in the next Parliament, uh, whoever the government should be at that time. So there's no guarantees of what would be reintroduced should that happen. Okay, so that's quite important. So we'll see in a moment that some bills in relation to last year's federal budget super announcements have got through, um, but others we're still waiting on. So what you're saying to us there is if they don't actually get through by the time the election is called, they're going to lapse and they need to be reintroduced in the next parliament to become law. That's exactly it. Okay, cool. Um, Tim, also some regulatory announcements. So the ATO here has announced that it's uh, will put out a consultation paper in relation to streamlining transfer balance cap reporting for self-managed super funds. So what's all this about? Yeah, so Craig, just at a high level, um, the ATO put out a consultation, ended on the 14th of January. And this is really about just some feedback the ATO has been provided about some of the problems with 
transfer balance cap reporting differences between APA regulated funds and longer reporting by SMSFs. And also different SMSFs will have either quarterly or annual reporting. And it's really just seeking to ask some questions about that feedback, um, which potentially looks at you know, whether SMSF transfer balance cap reporting can be brought a little bit more in line with the larger fund reporting over time. Okay, so from my understanding, this is really trying to address those issues where um, an SMSF is going to report a debit, for example, for uh, the commutation and rollover of a pension to a, a large regulated fund, a public offer fund. They're going to report that debit much later than the credit that would be reported by the large public offer fund. So as a result of that, the ATO thinks for a period of time that that member has two pensions. So overstating their transfer balance cap value and all that sort of stuff. So they're actually beginning to ask questions about, do we actually need to align the timing here between self-managed funds uh, reporting transfer balance cap events uh, with large funds so we get rid of or minimise these problems with with double counting of pensions? Exactly, yep. Yeah. Okay, cool. Now, Kim, our pension loan scheme has been rebranded. What's all this about? Yeah, so it's now called the Home Equity Access Scheme. Um, so that came in uh, 1st of January this year. And what the reason for the rename is that they're, they're trying to make it clear that it's not just for people who are receiving the age pension that they can um, you know, borrow against the equity in their home to to get a top up. It's also for self-funded retirees. So self-funded retirees, as long as they've reached age, pension age, and they own real estate, um, they can um, go into the home equity access scheme where they borrow money and um, receive fortnightly payments as well. Fantastic. Yeah, and, and it's interesting they've also changed the interest rate, which is um something that they don't normally do that often. So it was 4.5% on this um, essentially what is a reverse mortgage provided by the government. It's And uh, now it's gone down to 3.95% um, from the 1st of January this year. And that's quite interesting because um, for 22 years, the interest rate on the pension loan scheme didn't change. It was 5.25%. Um, and now it seems that the government is actually making adjustments to that interest rate in line with... Um, you know, what's happening with interest rates more generally. So, yeah, from 1st of January, the interest rate is 3.95%. Can't defy gravity forever, it seems. That's true. That's true. Um, and, I mean, I guess the tricky thing, isn't it, with the pension loan scheme or what's now the home equity access scheme is um, for advisors when they get asked about this scheme is you actually need a credit licence um, mm. to be able to provide advice on it, which, um, you know, not, all advisors have credit licences, so it can be a bit tricky. Um, but there is a lot of information available on the Services Australia website, including catch yeah. and so forth. And I think the important thing and why we've included this in this tech update is I think the, the rebranding there, we might see more people interested in what this is, um, government-run reverse kind of mortgage thing. And so even if you're not making any recommendations about the use of this scheme, you might get questions as an advisor about it. So it's still important to understand that the Home Equity Access Scheme is just the pension loan scheme rebranded and that there's some difference. So, you know, be aware of the changes so you can discuss that with your clients. All right, so let's move on to the big news, and that is that the bill that was um, introducing or legislating a lot of the superannuation um, announcements that were included in last year's federal budget has now passed 
both houses of parliament. Now, as of today, the that we're recording hasn't received royal assent, but we would expect that that would not that that'll just be a formality. Now, a couple of really important things to understand is that while the bill includes a, a whole bunch of measures that were announced in last year's budget, it doesn't include them all. So we'll go through and identify those ones which have got through. Um, but we'll also identify those which we're still waiting on. And as per Julie's comment before, really critical that that for us to get those legislated, not only do they need to be uh, introduced into the House of Representatives, which it actually hasn't yet, those unannounced uh, or those other provisions, um, it actually has to get through both houses before the election is called. So it may be that we're going to run out of time, but we'll look we'll look at that later on. Now, moving on to the announcements that have got through. Now, here it's important to note that most of these measures are due to commence from the 1st of July 2022, so only a few months away. Now, the first one we're going to have a look at is the abolition of the work test between age 67 and 75. This was announced for both non-concessional contributions and salary sacrifice contributions. Now, the important thing to understand here is the work test to be able to make a contribution between these this age group is actually sits in the CIS regulations and we're dealing here with a bill. So for those changes to be made to the CIS regulations, we need to see a regulation be registered and we haven't seen that. Now, the reason why we haven't seen it is certain other things needed to happen first. Now, when you go back here and understand what they said on budget night, they said non-concessional contributions and salary sacrifice, you no longer have to satisfy the work test, but they also said, however, the work test will still apply for people to be able to claim a tax deduction for their personal contributions between those ages, right? So that is what this bill has done. It has actually moved the work test or introduced the work test into the Tax Act to say that if you're between 67 and 75, you have to work 40 hours in 30 consecutive days to claim a tax deduction for your personal contribution, or you're able to satisfy the work test exemption. So if you recall what that is, someone with a total super balance of under $300,000 at the end of the previous year, and they all also were able to satisfy the work test in that previous year, they could actually make a contribution. So that's also been included. So Satisfy the work test or work test exemption, you can claim a tax deduction for your personal contribution. Now, when I first kind of started talking to this to advisors, some advisors said, oh, well, this is an additional requirement for people between 67 and 75 to claim a tax deduction. Actually, it's not because the way it used to work is you needed to be able to satisfy that work test to make the contribution and then you could claim your tax deduction for it. So at all times, someone in this in this age group would have always had to have satisfied a work test in order to get the contribution in, which then allowed them to claim the tax deduction. Now, if they're simply removing the work test, and I'll talk more about that um, in a moment, that means that they actually now have to apply the work test to the actual deductibility. So the same hurdles are there. It's just moved around a little bit. Um, the other really interesting thing here, though, is the work test declaration. So at the moment, for a trustee to be able to accept a contribution from someone in this age group, they actually need to declare that they've already done their 40 hours within 30 consecutive days. So how is that work test declaration going to work going forward? We think potentially you will confirm that in your tax return, but we don't know yet. We have to wait and see. Um, how the ATO announces this or whether the government will come out with something. But that's not yet quite clear. But certainly the, the work test has been abolished or, sorry, the, the deductibility test has been moved into the um, 
into the Tax Act. And now we just have to wait for those CIS regulations to come through. Now, Tim, also they made some announcements around the non-concessional contribution bring forward rule. Do you want to go through those, please? Yeah, that's right. So a significant change to the bring forward rule at the moment, as you'd be aware, you've got to be under 67 at the start of a financial year to trigger the bring forward. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's being significantly increased to anyone under 75 at the start of the year. Um, obviously subject to existing total super balance requirements. Um, so that uh, that potentially allows a, a gr- much greater number of people from 1 July 22 to trigger the bring forward rule. There was a little bit of uncertainty around um, whether there was a tapering of your access to the bring forward rule when you were when you were approaching age 75, so 73 mm-hmm. and 74, the bill seems to make quite clear that you can still trigger a full bring forward um, where you're eligible um, in the year that you turn 75. Um, and I think while the, the EM had some different commentary, which potentially suggested some uncertainty, I, I think Treasury have confirmed that the intention is uh, that the full bring forward would be available. Um, yeah. But really important to note that that if someone is looking at triggering the bring forward rule as they approach age 75 under this new rule from 1 July, um, the contribution rule, the, the normal contribution rule still applies. So any contributions, voluntary contributions have to be made no later than 28 days after the month in which you reach age 75. Right, terrific. Okay, so Kim, if we start to look at some of the advice issues and some of the FAQs that we're getting from advisors. So do you want to start off going through the um, the advice issues that we see? Yeah, well, I mean, there's obviously a lot of opportunities now, isn't there? If we can make contributions up until age 75, we don't have to meet a work test. We can use the bring forward rule for the non-concessional contributions. Um, obviously, there's a lot of opportunity to get more money into super. Uh, re-contributions are definitely going to feature, aren't they? So now, um, you know, between 67 and 75, we can implement re-contribution strategies for people um, without having to meet a work test. So that's that's going to be a big focus of advice, I think, going forward. Yeah, I would imagine there you've got your estate planning strategy. So take out tax taxable component and put back in as non-concessional, which turns it into tax-free, and also the spouse equalisation strategy. So you might have someone there that's exceeded their their transfer balance cap um, their spouse has got cap space available to them but they can't get it out of one spouse's account and into the other because no one they're over 67 and not working um, so that may come into play for them now um, that we could remove it from the higher spouse put it back into the lower spouse obviously subject to the age 75 limit um, and then commence an income stream so just spouse equalization strategies will be quite important there now in relation to um some questions we're getting. So we're getting a few questions coming through from our technical inquiry line. Um, so, Kim, the first one we're getting a few of is, will the work test apply to all concessional contributions or just personal deductible contributions? Yeah, so personal deductible contributions will have a work test. Um, mm-hmm. Other kinds of concessional contributions, such as salary sacrifice, will not have a work test. So their employer contribution, salary sacrifice, and they, yep, they won't yep. have a work test. But personal deductible contributions, it's quite clear, will have a work test. Yeah. So to understand that is that the amendment to the Tax Act was actually made to the subdivision that relates to personal contributions, claiming a tax deduction for personal contribution. The, the provisions or the subdivision that relates to employer contribution hasn't been amended at all. So it only relates 
to someone making a personal contribution and claiming a tax deduction for it. Um, another question we're getting is, will the work tests continue to apply to personal injury and small business CGT contributions? Now, this is a really important question, isn't it? This is, um, we need to wait for the regulations. So we don't have the regs, as you mentioned before yet, um, but our understanding is that the work test is being removed from the CIS regulations for personal contributions and it's only being added to the Tax Act for personal deductible contributions. So that would imply that all contrib- personal contributions such as personal injury and small business CGT would not have a work test apply. Um, but, of course, we need to wait for those regulations to be absolutely sure. Yeah, okay. But clearly some some really big opportunities here for clients. If I was an advisor, I'd certainly be looking at my clients, thinking which of the clients I think that could afford to get additional capital into super or want to do that. I'd be talking to them. I'd also be looking for those clients that potentially would benefit from a recontribution strategy. All right, so let's move on here. Um, downsize a contribution age. So, Julie, do you just want to run through what's happened here? Sure. It's um, some more good news that's finally come through. Uh, so, currently, if you sell your home and you want to make a downsize a contribution with up to 300000 of the proceeds, the minimum age which you can contribute a downsize a contribution is currently age 60. Um, and that minimum age is uh, oh, sorry, it's currently age 65. I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's being reduced from the 1st of July to age 60, which uh, opens up that opportunity for a whole lot more people. So importantly, this is the, the minimum age at the time you make the contribution. So say you're 59 and sold your house this financial year. If you turn age 60 within 90 days, so if you turned age 60 um, early next financial year and it was within 90 days of selling your home, uh, you would then qualify to make a downsizer contribution. So that uh, certainly opens up some opportunities for uh, the 60 to 64-year-olds that didn't have access to this opportunity previously. Um, It also means if you Combining that with your uh, up to $330,000 non-concessional cap, potentially each person can make uh, $630,000 in contributions. And so for a couple, up to $1.26 million in a year. Um, now, saying all of this, it's still critical that the downsizer notice uh, is submitted to the fund at the time of the contribution. If it's not, it would be a personal non-concessional contribution. And if you're maximising your contributions in this way using your maximum NCC cap and downsizer, um, you're going to have all sorts of issues with excess uh, contributions if you don't get that yeah, yeah. downsizer notice in at the time of the contribution. Yeah. And there's nothing you can do, is there? There's you, you can't come back two days later and say, oh, here, please accept the notice now. You know, uh, it was meant to be a downsizer. Of course it was. It's too late, yeah. really. Uh, you've got to provide the, the legislation is very, very clear. You have to provide the downsizer notice at the time of making the contribution or prior to. Yes, if it, very- try and make the downsizer, provide the notice after that date. Sorry, it's a non-concessional contribution. You've now just put 630 and you're going to have a $300,000 excess non-concessional Yeah, no, no leeway on that one, unfortunately. Um, yeah. so that's uh, the key point you want to be getting right uh, with that mm-hmm. strategy at all times. And the, uh, the other thing to keep in mind too, um, 
at the moment, with it only being available uh, for 65-year-olds to do this, um, they can do the contribution, but they can also have immediate access to it. Whereas if you've got a 60 to 64-year-old um, making these contributions, keep in mind that uh, it does go in as preserved, so they have to meet a subsequent condition of release um, yeah. to get any of that money back out again. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose they're also... When you think about it, there will be some clients that they could either make a, a downsizer or a non-concessional. So, you know, it's not up over 330. So there would be a question there if we've got both available to us, which one would you choose? Which type of contribution would you make? And that will very much depend on the member's circumstances. Sometimes it would make more sense to make that as a downsizer contribution. Otherwise, it will make or other times it will make more sense to make it as a non-concessional contribution. And that will just depend on the client's circumstances. Yeah, because yeah. there is no upper age limit. Um, and so the downsizer, you know, you may want to use in the future um, on the sale of some other residents. Exactly, exactly. Keeping your powder dry so because it's a once-off only opportunity. Okay, now moving on to the 450 per month SG threshold. Now, this is not a, a question we get a lot from advisors. Um, so some people will be going, oh, yeah, interesting, but not that relevant. But there is a little sting in the tail here. So basically what's happening is they're abolishing the $450 per month SG threshold, which says you've got to work at least $450 uh, or be earning more than $450 in a month to for the employer to have an SG liability for you. And they're getting rid of that $450 li uh, threshold. And the reason for that mostly is that it comes back to a superannuation gap between males and females. So uh, males generally have more, on average, more superannuation than females. And part of the problem with that or part of the cause of that is the simple fact that Females, women tend to be the stay-at-home carer or spend, have more broken work patterns throughout their working life because they tend to be stereotypically the ones that are spending time at home with the young children or with the elderly parents. Now, in that situation, that uh, that person may be working on a part-time basis but earning less than four fifty. And when you look at the stats, the, the vast majority of part-time workers are actually female. So what they're saying here is get rid of that because in those situations, these, there's no reason why those people shouldn't be getting SG coverage and it will help address this gap, all of this difference between super savings between men and women. Now, the interesting thing here, and this is what I was saying is the sting in the tail, is what you may have is some retirees um, that are doing a bit of work to get the work bonus, now all of a sudden, you know, maybe they're earning $400 a month or even less, now all of a sudden they're going to be entitled to SG. Now, in that situation, if that client has a self-managed super fund, I would probably suggest not putting the or directing those employer contributions into the self-managed super fund. Why? It comes back to a comment I just made in previously, because once those SG contributions go into the super fund, if that member's already or the self-managed super fund husband, wife, maybe, or a couple, they're already 100% in pension phase, and all of a sudden they get, let's say, $10 SG contribution for the month, then that $10 is sitting in accumulation phase, which means that part of that fund is now in the accumulation phase for part of the year, which then means that the trustees are going to actually have to go out and get an actuarial certificate into the year to tell the fund that they're 99.99% in pension phase, right? So the, the issue there is that's going to cost $150, $200, whatever it costs, in order to receive $10 worth of contribution. So in that situation, yes, they'll still need the accumulation account, but I would suggest potentially opening that up with a public offer fund rather than putting into the self-managed super fund because you don't want to pay $150 to get a $10 contribution. Um, the other issue there is just understanding what happens here for under-18s. I, I saw this announcement. I thought, oh, my daughter might actually get uh, some SG 
for her part-time work at the local fast food joint. Um, but then I reminded myself that uh, people under age 18 actually have to work 30 hours a week to get SG. So those kids that are doing some part-time work doesn't mean they're going to get SG, unfortunately, out of this announcement. Um, Julie, also some changes in relation to First Home Super Saver. Yeah, it um, certainly makes the scheme a little bit more worthwhile. Um, they've increased the eligible contributions that can be released uh, from the scheme from a maximum of 30000 to 50000 so uh, a lot more substantial when you're looking at a home deposit for your first home. Um, now, the annual cap remains at $15,000 of eligible contributions you can make per year. So that means that to reach that maximum limit that you're able to take out, you would need to contribute um, for at least four years, the $15,000 per year for four years to get access to that maximum $50,000. Right. Terrific. Okay. Now, moving on to the other measure that was included in this bill, but actually wasn't a budget measure. So this is Government are already committed to doing this, um, so it wasn't part of those uh, 2021 federal budget announcements. And this was allowing self-mentorship fund to choose the segregation method. So um, essentially what they're saying here is that funds fully in the pension phase for only part year currently need to use both methods. So if I give you a very quick example, couple, let's say one of them is fully retired and has been retired for a couple of years and all of their benefits are in um, a self-managed fund paying an account-based pension and their spouse is currently working and in the accumulation phase. So for the, let's say they retire on the 1st of January this year and then the spouse also used all of their benefits to commence a uh, account-based pension. So in that situation, in the first half of the year, what the ATS says is because you've got benefits in both accumulation and pension, you need to use the unsegregated method. But then once you once you get to 1 July, you're now actually fully segregated. So you need to use the segregated method to calculate your tax. So you're using both methodologies in the one year, which makes things complex and therefore more expensive to administer for. So what the industry asked the government was to say, can we please just go back to the way the government, uh, the industry used to do this before 1 July 2017 when the ATO confirmed that this was the, the way that it needed to work um, and that this is what this measure does. It simply says in the year that you go from being part in the pension phase to being fully in the pension phase, then in that situation, the trustees can choose to apply the unsegregated method for the entire year. Now, in that situation, that will make that fund simpler to administer and so therefore, therefore cheaper. However, you need to understand also, but that may come at a tax cost. So we may well see actuarial certificates still do both calculations and give trustees the options to say, well, if you apply the unsegregated method to the whole of the year, this is your tax, tax outcome. Or if you apply the both methodologies in that same year, this is your tax outcome. And then it would simply be a cost-benefit analysis. It's going to cost me an extra $300 to run both methodologies in a year, but I'm getting a tax saving of an additional $3,000 or something to that, to, to that effect. So we're likely to see that sort of um, development in future. Now, Tim, not everything from last year's budget's got good budget announcements got through. Do you want to run us through what we're still waiting on? Yeah, so there's there's two key proposals or sets of proposals really that we haven't seen introduced into Parliament as yet. The first is a voluntary two-year uh, window uh, that members can use to commute 
certain complying pensions. So they might include term allocated pensions and complying defined benefit pensions in an SMSF, for example. Um, so voluntarily choosing to commute those subject to uh, transfer balance cap treatment, Centrelink treatment, and also the treatment of reserves, which is somewhat unknown at the moment. Mm. Um, and then the second one is some key changes to uh, super fund residency, um, simplifying, I guess, making it easier for SMSFs to satisfy those residency requirements. And that includes getting rid, rid of completely the active member test and also expanding the um, the temporary absence under the central management and control test. Uh, there's a safe harbour at the moment that allows temporary absences up to two years, extending that to five years. And so those proposals, um, no bill as yet. And obviously, as was mentioned earlier, we're getting quite close to the election. There's very few sitting days, particularly for the Senate. So there is a real chance, I think, that we won't see these measures legislated by the time of the election. Yeah, we might see them introduced, but then unfortunately lapse when the when the election is called. So we're really running out of time until unless they can really get their skates on to get this one through. So we have to wait and see, but uh, it's going to be a race against the time, a, a clock for, for both of those measures. All right, moving on to uh, just our self-managed super fund issues that we're seeing out in the market at the moment. And the first one relates to some super stream teething problems, right? So obviously we've had super stream in relation to contributions from unrelated employers into self-managed super funds for a while. Um, now we've got Superstream from, I think, the 1st of October last year applying to all rollovers involving a self-managed super fund. So large fund to a self-managed super fund, self-managed super fund to a large fund or self-managed super fund to self-managed super fund. Now that rollover has to be processed through Superstream. So what that means is that there is both an electronic message that needs to be sent through the Superstream messaging system between funds and also an electronic transfer of funds using a universal identifier that is triggered through the, the, the data message process. Now, a couple of problems here. We're seeing that funds that are just not aware of these new rules, so they're, they're attempting to roll over. So, you know, we're, we've seen funds, self-managed funds looking to wind up, wanting to roll over to our fund, a colonial first state fund, but not you know, don't have an electronic service provider, don't have an electronic service addressed and trying to do it with a check and, and, a, and a paper application form. So um, so there is an element there of uh, just not enough understanding in, in the market at the moment about what these rules are and what, what they require. So we're seeing the ATO get a lot more active there and trying to um, communicate with trustees that they, they need to have an electronic service address and rollovers need to be done via Superstream. Um, also, a couple of issues here that if your fund does have an electronic service address, and not all funds do, and that's really important to understand that although you might have a fund, uh, self-managed super fund, it may not have been accepting contributions or doing rollovers previously, so it may not have had an electronic service address. Um, or if it was accepting contributions from an unrelated employer, it might have. But important to understand that Electronic service addresses, some of them are only set up just to deal with contributions, whereas what we need now is an ESA set up to deal with both contributions and rollovers if we're doing a rollover. So you need to check that your ESA is rollover compliant. Um, another problem we're also seeing is that when we're doing a rollover, let's say we've got a self-managed fund wanting to wind up and let's say roll $400,000 over to a public offer fund. 
then they do all the data messaging fine, but then what happens is they go to do the um, electronic funds transfer and their bank account, their Superfund's bank account, has a daily transfer limit. Maybe let's call that you know, $200,000 in this circumstance. So what they do is they break that rollover up into two separate transfers rather than changing their daily transfer limit. But the problem is that the fund that has received the message is expecting one rollover of $400,000, not two rollovers of $200,000 each, and that will cause an error in the system where we won't be able to process the rollover. So you need to change the daily transfer limit. Something that um, other trustees are also doing is they're going down to their local branch and requesting the branch to do the transfer. The unfortunate thing there is that also won't be a complying transfer because what the branch will do is move it into a holding account and then sending it, send it from the holding account, not from the bank account that was nominated that was going to come from. So once again, the receiving fund just won't be able to process that. Okay. Now, there obviously you can fix those problems by just going and upping the daily transfer limit to allow you to do it. A um, couple of other issues here is a three-day time limit applies. So once the member says that they want to roll over, you've got to roll over within three days. But anyone that's wound up a self-managed super fund before knows that that takes months and months and months. So actually, the rollover request would be one of the last things you actually do. And then finally, if you're doing part of the rollover in specie, that's fine. You don't actually have to do the in specie rollover via Superstream. But if it's part cash, part in specie transfer of an asset, then the Superstream does apply to the cash rollover and then you would do a separate rollover for the in-specie asset. Okay, so just be aware of those problems. Got any questions, give us a call or we've, or we've written some articles on it. Now, Julie, just to finish up, other admin issues? I think there's some movement there around director identification numbers. Yeah, this is um, just a reminder. This was announced last year, uh, director identification numbers. Every director under the Corporations Act has to have one, um, and that includes trustees of uh, – sorry, corporate trustees of SMSFs. Um, so depending on when you became a – um, director will depend on the time frame you have to get that director's ID. If you were a director before the 31st of October last year, you need to apply by the 30th of November 2022. If uh, if you became were appointed a director between the 1st of November last year and the 4th of April 2022, you have uh, 28 days from being appointed uh, to be able to apply for your director ID. Um, then from the 5th of April this year, if uh, you're planning to be appointed as a director, you have to actually apply before you're appointed. So some really important timeframes to keep in mind there. And the thing to keep in mind, it's it's uh, they have an online process to do this, but you need a MyGov ID in order to do this. And this is different from having a MyGov account online. Uh, it's the government's ID system and you have to have certain identity documents scanned and uploaded. So uh, it is a little bit of a process and takes a bit of organisation and um, patience to get the MyGov ID set up before you apply for your d director identification number. Um, so I guess the warning here is with hundreds of thousands of um, trustee directors of SMSFs and any other corporate uh, corporate directors that are applying for their numbers, using an online system, you don't want to be doing it at the last minute. <laughs> that thing's going to be crashed yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So get in there now. Um, 
while there's plenty of time um, and then there's there's time for, um, you know, getting those extra documents that you didn't know you needed and it taking far longer than you thought it would. Um, and I guess the last thing I would say, this is a personal process. You can't have somebody do this on your behalf, um, which also requires some extra time to be set aside for um, busy SMSF trustees um, to make that time to get on there personally and uh, apply for their director identification number. Yeah, so I suppose the, the really important thing there is the vast bulk of people um, that are already members and directors of their corporate trustee, um, they're going to have a deadline of 30 November 2022. As Julie just said, it's going to take a little bit of effort to get through the process, um, start communicating with your clients and get it, get them to do it as soon as possible. You don't want them calling up at 4.30 on the 30th November wanting help with how you do this. Um, just get them doing it now. Okay, guys, I think we're going to wrap it up there. Thanks for your participation. No worries. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, Craig. No worries. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please note these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors as a source of general information. All scenarios considered during this podcast were purely hypothetical and for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. You should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decisions and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. It has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be accurate and reliable. No person, including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited, accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.